This is the I'm Stuff podcast, a podcast about eating disorders, disordered eating, body image, and mental health. I'm your host, Queenie June Borgman, and in today's episode, episode 19 of season 5, I'm talking to Merel from Sneller Kwetsbaar about perfectionism, autism, and being a guest speaker as an experience expert. Okay, guys, welcome back to the I'm Stuff Eating Disorder podcast. And this episode, episode 19 of season five, we're having guests that are actually talking about psychology in almost every dimension of eating disorders possible. And as you know, at more of the end of the season, I'm introducing guests. And one of these guests today is Merel van Sneller Kwetsbaar. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Merel. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yes, I've been following you actually for quite some time because I've seen your content about autism and I really love that content also when it comes down because it's not only autism but perfectionism. Um, I think um, old me could relate to that. Uh, And I think a lot of the current people that have an eating disorder or other mental struggles as well But before we jump into today's episode, um, could you give a little bit of a description of what you do online or offline uh, with Sneller Kwetsbaar? Yeah, of course. I am the founder of Sneller Kwetsbaar. And for uh, the non-Dutch listeners, you can translate it to Foster Vulnerable. And it's an Instagram platform where I want to inspire and encourage others to talk about their own mental health problems. And of course, I do that myself as an expert by experience. And I do that on my Instagram page, but also offline as an inspirational speaker at events, workshops, schools, and universities. Okay, and if people would like to find you, because I think, you know, a a part of the group that listens to this uh, podcast, a big part is from America, another part is diverse, and I think one third of it are Dutchies. If they want to find you um, on Instagram, what is your Instagram name? Yeah, the name is Sneller Kwetsbaar, and mm-hmm. I can be primar- primarily found on Instagram, but we also have like a YouTube channel where a few videos can be seen, and mm-hmm. I'm currently working on a website where speaker requests can be submitted. Okay, nice. And what um, next to Instagram, is your site also a place that people can contact you? Yeah, of course. There's in my, um, I think you call it like a link tree. There's mm-hmm. also a contact form where you can always like, or send a DM or uh, fill in like a, a speaker request if you wanted to. Okay, nice. I'm grabbing one thing out of the sentences you said. You said that you, you know, you made your content and you made sneller kwetsbaar based upon yes. the fact that you are an experience expert. What yes. were your experiences that eventually made you make sneller kwetsbaar? Well, I have always been insecure uh, since I was like a little girl. And at some point it got, got out of control, we can say, mm-hmm. uh, because I... I became dependent of the opinions of others and I started people pleasing just to avoid being rejected. Mm-hmm. Um, but the insecurity stayed and I started focusing on becoming like the best version of myself. Or um, perhaps I could better say the 
perfect version of myself because I wanted to be like the perfect best friend, the perfect colleague, the perfect employee, classmate, girlfriend, and the best daughter. Mm-hmm. And you can probably imagine that that, that is too much. Um, and I disappointed myself every day um, because I was not good enough for myself again. And those daily disappointments for years made me depressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was still insecure during my depression, but I no longer had the energy um, to pretend to be perfect. So I started eating away my insecurities mm-hmm. and that created a binge eating disorder. And mm-hmm. then I entered an endless cycle where I was depressed and I was eating my sadness away. And that made me even more depressed. And that made me to a point where I had more sadness to eat away. Mm-hmm. And in that made me suicidal. And meanwhile, I also found it really hard to um, accept that I was depressed and that you couldn't see anything from the outside, except for the dark circles under my eyes, for example. Mm-hmm. But my brain made it a, a very big problem out of that. Um, so eventually I started self-harming in various mm-hmm. ways. Mm-hmm. So I can, I could physically see that there was something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. But within, I thought it was only like for reassurance for myself. But within a month, I was addicted to it. And it was okay. like with eating, I seemed, uh, it seemed to take my sadness away and the hopelessness and the helplessness. But then um, due to therapy... Um, I understand that there's also a healthy way um, to help to take the sadness and the helplessness away and that's by talking about it and that's what I want to do with Snedder Kretzbar. Okay I think it's beautiful how you said that that was very uh, relatable on some points you know I think I've had numerous times even today in, in a phase in my life that I had that I don't care anymore sometimes it can be positive and sometimes mm-hmm. it can be negative. <laughs> so yeah. it de- it depends which way that goes. And I think for, you said something about self-harm. Um, we do have, sometimes we talk about self-harm on the podcast. I must say that uh, when it comes down to overeating or undereating, it also is a form of self-harm. Let me yes. put that out there. Because a lot of people think that self-harm is only the uh, auto-mutilation. So cutting yeah. or, but that, and having an eating disorder itself is self-harm. Um, what was for you the moment that you were like, okay, hmm, maybe I should change this? What or was somebody else out, out you know outside of you? So a person, family member that said, you know, you need to change this or caught up to what was happening? Well, In the beginning, I really realized that I needed therapy and I went to uh, like the family medicine doctor. I asked for help. I got a therapist and I got another one and another one and another one. But they all couldn't help me in the phase that I was at that point um, until the day that my parents didn't know that I was Mm self-harming. And um, my mom walked in the bathroom accidentally and then she saw the result of my self-harming I don't want to like name what I did but yeah she saw the results um and that made her realize how bad my situation was going Mm -hmm. and then she the next day she started a conversation with me and 
saying like how worried she was about me and how scared she was about the fact that there was a chance that I was not going to make it to another week. And mm -hmm. at that point, we made the conclusion together that uh, it was the best way that I was like going to be admitted in the clinic. Um, so yeah, it, it was my mom actually. She, she made me do it. That's a beautiful thing. For me, it was yeah. my dad. Did she did it forcefully? Or did she did it in a caring way? Because that is a big difference. Some, uh, some no, parents no. know. So, she so did just... it in a caring way, yeah. Okay, nice. Because for me, it was very different. Like, uh, But I must say, at some point, it was so visible that I just started to become gray. And my voice changed. And I couldn't even walk anymore. So I was like, I cannot even describe what I was doing. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and then my dad was, he, he sat me down and he was like, you're going to eat that, you know, salmon and you're not going to leave this house before you eat that piece of salmon. Mm -hmm. Then the GP got involved with it. Then a dietitian got involved with it. A very PTSS type of material in my personal yeah. opinion. So I'm very happy that your mom did it in a loving way because I do have had a lot of people in front of me that experience parents that are so strict with it um, yeah. that uh recovery becomes such a mm, well let me put it that way you will never forget how it started that's a beautiful way to say it and i always think like when other people are trying to force you it's because they don't know how to handle it properly yeah definitely i i think this is the panic and fear in dutch yeah, the angst uh that they have and they don't know how to express uh, express it themselves and then yes. that is a, a, a route they choose. Um, so you you had that talk with your mom. Um, that afterwards you went to the GP, you went to the clinic. Where did you went to? Well, we, um, I think, I cannot remember everything. So, right, I think people who are listening and deal with depression or have dealt with depression are like really... Um, understanding that sometimes your mind doesn't just recognize things anymore oh highly yeah, <laughs> yeah but mm -hmm. I think we did it online but I, I'm not sure actually about it anymore I think it's very beautiful how you tell actually that specific part I did an episode about uh, memory loss because of an eating disorder or when yeah. very traumatic events happen and it really is your way from your body to protect you. And I even had it this yeah. year because I had a very shitty time somewhere in between June and August. And it, it's just a very beautiful way how your mind does that because it actually is trying to protect you. So it, it, it almost control all beliefs, memories for you that can be harmful. Mm. Yeah, but that makes sense. Yeah, but sometimes it really is because of malnutrition or of because of the depression and the certain hormones aren't uh, balanced. I was wondering, you know, if you look at your journey, because you had quite a journey, um, uh, you talk about autism, you talk about uh, perfectionism. Are the diagnoses you got? Yeah, well, I don't think there is. I got my autism diagnosis last January. So mm -hmm. it was recently, um, and the perfectionism diagnosis. I don't know if there's like a real DSM five diagnosis or something. Mm, I don't think I, so. Mm -hmm. No, I didn't get it. But everyone always asks me like, 
or said to me you're super perfectionistic and I was always like no I aim just for high quality mm-hmm. um so I think it was always super clear that I was perfectionistic uh, or a perfectionist um and now the further I got in recovery I I'm realizing it too so yes I think there is like a diagnosis for both of them okay and the thing is I have interviewed a lot of ladies with autism and a lot of my female clients that I have in front of me, not per se eating disorder uh, related, but just in, you know, normal dietitian settings, they have autism as well. Um, and I've had two types of people in front of me. The one that says, I have, uh, I, I just say something, you know, uh, I'm Lisa yeah. and I have autism or I'm Lisa yeah. and, you know, I got, um, I, you know, I am autistic. So this is yes. two different ways of saying it. And I was yes. wondering, how is that for you? Well, I know I I once public uh, published on my Instagram something about it. And I said, like, I do have autism. And someone commented, like, um, it's really weird for the autistic community when you say that you have it. Because it's like, I'm having a cold and I can get over it. Um, but I... I'm not feeling great when I say I am autistic. Sometimes I say it, but it's more accidentally than that I say it on purpose because I think I am Mero and mm-hmm. I have certain qualities or uh, correct characteristics. Mm-hmm. Characteristics, yeah. Yes. But um, I'm my identity is not my autism. And in my opinion, there are like two different ways. I... I was not my eating disorder. I had an eating disorder. And I think those are two different things. But I know that there are so many people who think about it completely different. And I think you always have to use what feels right for you. I think it's very beautiful how you said it. Because I often have like either one group or the other, how they say it and how they present themselves. And I found it so interesting because when I started to listening better, it was really about a certain thing of perspective. And actually, to be honest, uh, I am more uh, HSP, so high sensitive personality. Um, And when we were, when I was working with clients, uh, if I would, if I would uh, have had uh, autism, I would rather also uh, choose your way because if uh, in somewhat for me, I would feel like I'm a little bit helpless as in, um, you know, yeah. this is my identity and this is something I struggle with or this, this is me and this is my struggle, you know, how to yeah, go. So at the end of the day, of course, people should always choose what they uh, prefer, but uh, I get your choice and how you would state that. Um if you would look at your journey, you know, up till now, because you went through a lot, I believe you went to Yes We Can clinics as well, right? Yeah. That's How was that right. for you? Well, it was, um, they handle a completely different strategy of therapy. And mm-hmm. that makes it really hard. And mm-hmm. um, it's not always fun, actually, but it really literally changed my whole life positive or negative they oh in positive way of course 100 positive yeah i'm sorry and they have like a tough love vibe that they handle it's like super confronting or 
they say things to you like super direct, like straight into, into the face. You messed this up because you did this, this, and this, and you didn't do that, that, and that. And in the beginning, I was not used to therapists or counselors talking to me like that. Mm -hmm. But I realized at that point of my life, it was exactly what I needed. Yeah. There was no other therapy that could give my life back the way they did it. Nice. Nice. I think it's good to hear this, actually. I was in a conversation a few days ago with somebody with orthorexia and I think the way I approach her, because sometimes a little bit of tough love is needed. A lot of people, mm -hmm. um, of course, you know, at the end of the day, when you're a healthcare uh, employee, uh, employee, you have certain guidelines to work with. So you cannot go yeah. too much uh, out of that box. But in the ways that you said, you know, with tough love, it really is a way to make people think differently and not always... Um, um, the the generic you know therapy way or dietitian way the that has a certain distance in it uh, but also isn't very confronting sometimes yes so it's and very I that, yeah i think it's the um i was admitted in the clinic for 10 weeks mm -hmm. so every if they said something to me that was like super rough what they did of course i was not alone a single second of the day Mm -hmm. And I think it's different when you have, for example, one-on-one -on -one or group therapy. And after that, you go home. Yeah, I think it's way more risky to be tough love or to act like tough love mm -hmm. um, instead of when you're like staying there 24-7. Agree. What are some valuable lessons you learned there and like to, you know, teach others? Oh, well, I think it is about honesty. I think mm -hmm. it's about being honest with yourself and being vulnerable to others. Because I had sometimes conversations to me that uh, I, yeah, how do you say it? Like I, there were conversations that happened to me that I thought, geez, oh my God, how, how hard is this? Or how difficult is this to talk about? Um, and then after a few weeks, of course, not in the beginning, I realized that I had a choice. I could say nothing or I could pretend that it wasn't true or I could gather all my courage and show the most vulnerable side of me and say something like, um, yes, that's true. Um, I've never thought about that in a way that you did. Uh, and I find, it, I find it quite challenging to hear, but you are right. And I don't know how to handle it. So do you want to help me with that? Mm -hmm. And it's super hard. It's super hard. And it's still, um, and it still is. But for my opinion, that's the only way um, I've been able to grow. And I wish that for everyone. And I know it's hard, but it's so worth it that I would say, give it a try. Definitely. So I know um, well, like just what you just stated there, I think it's very beautiful to say that um, you're actually giving away control. Yes. That because that, that is a, if you could like sum it up, and especially because a lot of people with eating disorder have this control tendencies. You're actually yeah. saying, you know, I don't know this. I don't know how to get me out of this shit, and yeah. I'm surrendering to what you want to teach me, and I'm open to to learn. Yes. And and that's a beautiful thing because I think often. 
specifically because people with an eating disorder aren't dumb at all. Mostly they're very well no. educated. So yes. we know a lot. <laughs> and then and actually saying, okay, maybe I don't know this, or maybe I should just, you know, shut up for once and just listen. It's a very, very, very growing thing to do for a person with an eating disorder. But it is super hard because you know, you know the thing? Most of the time we do know that we're doing something completely wrong. Mm -hmm. But we don't want to admit it. True, 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 true. When you're admitting it, you gave something vulnerable and they see you and they can like grab you on your most vulnerable parts. Definitely. Actually, And if you say like, I don't know, this is my insecurity this is what I do wrong and I want to change it, but I don't know how I'm going to change it. You changed it in your own life. Do you want to help me with that? Definitely. I think that is the growth mindset that if we would use it in like the mental health society, I think we all can grow like 300%. Really? I do think because people need to put their ego aside and it's something that we eventually learn people with mental uh, challenges uh, because we get sent to that place or come in contact with people that try to change our perspectives. But a lot of people, they just live in a Dutch word tunnel VC, so a tunnel vision they're doing and doing and they aren't open for other feedback. You can also see it in things like um, school or work that people can that cannot handle feedback. Um, there is very much a lot of work to do because if you cannot handle constructive feedback, you're actually, your mind isn't open to what other people have to say or learn you. Yes, precisely. Um, I know that I, because I've done my research on your page, uh, mm-hmm. in the beginning you had a little bit of a, uh, I don't want to say problem, but it, it felt heavy to share your story, but eventually you did share it. And yeah. What, what did it give you by sharing your story? Um, well, I in the beginning, I didn't share it um, because I always thought, um, I was always afraid that people would think I was a poser because mm-hmm. I thought everyone else, their problems were like worse than mine. But at some point, I really changed my perspective. And now I would say to myself and, and to others, of course, are you only allowed to talk about your problems when they are the biggest compared to anyone else their problems? Or can you just ask for help earlier because you are having a harder time than usual? And by doing that, it gave me recognition and it gave me the feeling that I wasn't the only one and that I wasn't weird or different uh, because I know... um, that I'm not the only one because now because now I know that I'm not I'm not the only one with my problems and that makes it more bearable um, because now I can talk about it about my problems but also about the problems from others together and because I made that mindset shift I was like okay now I can be open as well because I don't think other people have it worse they just having a different differently yeah. they have different problems but none of them is like worse or less you're just having a harder time than usual 
I agree. And I think it's something so funny that you bring this up because in the beginning, way uh, back in the beginning when I had my eating disorder, I was like, well, you know, I'm still okay. I have an energy for 10. The next episode actually after you will be episode 20, uh, uh, Stop Lying to Yourself. And um, that episode is made because I have clients in front of me that are lying to themselves and to me straight in my face that everything is going yeah. great, that, oh, no, I am not uh, moving because I'm not doing any extra activity, but they are biking two hours a day or they yes. are taking four hours for one sandwich or what What else do we have it? Uh, no, everything is fine. I have not enough energy, but that energy is very false because with an eating disorder, that hyperfixation can give energy for 10 people. And mm -hmm. if there's one thing that I learned from that, even before I could help people out and for myself was that um, a perspective of a problem is very much uh, needed to, how would I say that? Um, I yeah. always... Yeah, but also when I told myself was, okay, Queenie, so you have this problem, um, but look at the child that's walking with his, uh, you know, his uh, knuffle, so the little, uh, you know, bear, a bear, and and if that child let let it drop, he and he is crying, that is the biggest problem for him at that moment. If an ant can't find any sugar to eat, that is the biggest problem for him at that moment. So there's always a scale. There always is a more worse, you know, that, yeah. you know, the, so if you're going to make that comparison, because often it's comparison also very, it's comparison really is the chief of joy, but also very much, in the eating disorder community you never give your opportunity to yourselves to heal because there's always somebody doing worse but it's not about somebody doing worse it's about the shit that troubles you and is actually declining your quality of life so that's why just like how you said that um, i think a lot of people with uh, disordered eating body image stuff like that they don't take it seriously because they're comparing yeah my therapist once said to me I totally agree with you. She said to me, the thing you are looking for, you will find it. If you're looking for someone with a bigger problem or a smaller problem or someone who's thinner, thicker, longer, shorter, prettier, more ugly, whatever, you can always find it. If, you, if you're looking for it, you will find it. Yeah, I agree. Definitely. You, you said therapist and I... I hope I've researched this well, mm -hmm. but somewhere I found that you started out with therapy around 12 uh, to 13, and yes. I believe you're 23 or 24 now. Yeah. What is for you, you know, your experience looking at everything uh, with that? Well, um, when I was 12, I started therapy for my insecurities. For example, I... Um, I didn't wear shorts in, in the summer or when I was on vacation in Turkey because I thought my legs were too fat and mm -hmm. I styled my hair every day because I was ashamed of my curly hair. And um, then when I was 12, 13, I got a really nice therapist and she was super lovely, but she was doing only under 18. Um, but she helped me to see that it's not just about my looks that there were so many different things to care about in life and when I was 21 um, because of my di uh, depression diagnosis mm -hmm. I had three different therapists in one year but I didn't even like one of them 
I had uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, I had drama therapy, I had sports therapy, I had activation therapy, but the way they approached it was not it for me. What and is a deal? What is a deal breaker for you? What is is for you a good therapist? Well, I think a good therapist is a great listener, um, but even more important, asks the right questions. When you say, I don't care about something, or I do care some about something, why do you care about it? Or why don't you care about it? And the why question will always lead to like the inner problem. Agreed, definitely. And the ter- well, the thing was like the waiting lists in the Netherlands are so long. Well, probably in every country, mm-hmm. but I face them in the Netherlands. And... Um, the waiting lists were so long when I asked for the first like like the first grade of therapy that you get after a diagnosis I had to wait six or ten weeks between six and ten weeks and my depression got worse but when I get like the first level of therapy my depression was already needing the help of the second level of therapy and when my therapist realized that they put me on the waiting list for the second level but then my depression was already on the third level. So I was always like, my therapy was always like walking behind. Um, so probably that was the way why the way that they approached the therapy was not working for me because my depression was already in a further stage. Mm-hmm. And um, eventually I was then admitted to um, Yes Weekend Clinics. Mm-hmm. And they use a very effective and uh, motivated way of therapy. And within their combination of the tough love that I mentioned, Mm -hmm. they literally gave my life back. Okay, nice. Um, Then we're going to jump. Good luck. I love that ending because my next question (laughs) would be, uh, I think on the 1st of June, you were, I would say, I think you you used the word clean from, from from, from the habits you've had. Yeah. Uh, so so they really um they really actually forced those bad habits out of you in a good way um, yes. and I, I thought in the beginning it would maybe be a part of substances but it are it substances or am i saying something wrong well, or is it yeah no it's it, it doesn't matter in my it, what we learned is you have um the substances addiction mm-hmm. and you have process addiction yeah. and they're the same actually it's still an addiction but it's the thing that you are addicted to and it doesn't mean we always say it's like the your drug of choice and it doesn't have to be a drug but it's the you're addicted or you're not so when i would for example say i'm addicted to self-harm doesn't mm-hmm. mean i'm not addicted to alcohol but my preference for self-harming instead of using alcohol. Okay. And if you look at this, because it's now a year, um, what are the biggest differences in your life after you chose for recovery? Well, um, the first year, it was very hard, um, very difficult for me to not use it anymore. And then I'm talking about like the overeating and the, uh, self-harming process but it re- it it was so hard to not do that anymore but at the same time it really challenged me to talk more from my emotions and 
talking from what I really think and what I really feel has given me more than my uh, addictive behavior have ever did. Mm -hmm. And I know, I know, yes, we can clinics and I know there's a big success rate in people that come out, but not everybody that comes out, you know, uh, eventually does have success. What is needed for anybody coming out of any clinic here, specifically people with an eating disorder are listening to this, Yes. That makes that success chance bigger. What do need do people need to do when they walk away from a clinic? Well, I think it has is it's the same as I said with like my lesson. It's being honest to yourself and being like having the courage and even if you don't have it, fake that you have it, to be vulnerable, to say to someone, I know I just stepped out of the clinic but I still don't know how to do it on my own. So do you want to help me? Yeah, definitely. Some people, yeah, yeah, sorry. It's with every every clinic. It's with every addiction. It's with every every problem. It doesn't have to be like only mentally, of course. But if you are not honest to yourself, you're making your life so much harder. And if you're not willing to be vulnerable, you're making it even harder for yourself at all because you can ask the help from you're not the first who did it and there are so many people around you who have faced it or face something differently but can help you in a way that you need definitely definitely i think you know we somewhat should be thankful for the fact that there are elderly people or people that maybe are younger but already had the situation and heard from it they're walking living knowledge is just walking yes. around to help you out um and i think you should def- definitely make use of that but then again comes that part again eating disorder behavior is asking help you know it's a very fearful thing uh mm-hmm. for a lot of people because asking help is again making yourself vulnerable or in dutch je fragile je kwetsbaar opstellen with, with your uh, reference to your name sneller kwetsbaar and it is so much needed to grow. Uh, and I think a lot of people are listening to this. Some, A lot of listeners are in, in the quasi-recovery, kind of want to recover, but not really yes. recovering. We're listening to this. Um, and I highly believe that the only way to recover is to go, if I could translate it to being more quickly, more vulnerable, uh, yeah. to open that door in your mind to let other people in mm-hmm. I, I want to I wanted to jump because you, you talked about uh, depression and uh, I although I never got the diagnosis I uh but I was <laughs> I have I was the eating disorder patient that was trying to skip diagnosis for life oh yes <laughs> and now <laughs> I regret it so badly but um I was I think numerous times depressed um and I think depression um I I was listening to a podcast and somebody said about you know sometimes you feel sad and if that feeling is prolonged and long and isn't getting any better and actually it's getting worse you're talking Mm -hmm. about depression that is how he actually described it but I was wondering, I, I agree with him, but what is your take on depression? What what is it in your eyes? What how does it feel? What how does it translate in how people express themselves? 
Well, I always thought the impression was that you either wanted to die or you were in bed asleep all day. But in reality, there are many faces to it. Because in the beginning of my depression, I didn't like doing fun things anymore. But I wasn't in bed all day and I wasn't suicidal. Uh, later, I started to find life meaningless and I got more tired, but I wasn't in bed all day. I was going to school, I was working, and later at a point where I was suicidal, I was still going to my internship and I was not in bed all day. But I was awake all night because of the side effects of my antidepressants. And yes, later there was a point where I no longer managed to um, perform at my internship and I also stopped studying. And even, but then for the first time, a year after my diagnosis, I fulfilled this stereotype. Then I was suicidal and then I was in bed all day. But that was a year after my diagnosis. And mm -hmm. I think that's the stereotype that we do have to break. And that's the same with perfectionism. I thought it was always about high grades in school or um, focusing on the details in reports were always being super clean and structured and organized. But I didn't know you can also aim for perfection in social areas of life to mask other insecurities. And those are things nobody ever talks about. I Yeah, I agree. I also think, again, in that stereotype, of course, it can be a part of it, but maybe it's in a certain part of depression on how you where you are I actually had yeah. the same thing i was depressed but i was still was going on going on going on and some point i didn't i just said you know i'm not gonna do this anymore school-wise i was getting depressed of it because i didn't show something that i wanted and then all of the shit came with it including the eating disorder um I think you know when it comes down to science for a little example because i've been cured for quite some time now but when it came down to depression this year I did felt a little bit again that I was I was heading that little phase and something for me that was obviously and that's something how you need to that's why I always recommend to write stuff down to get to know yourself as a person and normally I would always wake up very early or early like between six and seven and then I had some time to do the breakfast and I would eventually you know jump in my car and go to work at some point I couldn't wake up anymore and yeah. I was it was like seven and 7 30 was the max that I no, it was like 7 25 and 7 30 I needed to go to you know out of the door because eight yeah. I needed to be at work so I was skipping that you know that peaceful moment I was skipping breakfast I was just skipping everything and just like quickly clothed clothe myself and go you know drive to work and for me personally how slight you know how minor this is I knew that mm. that was a little sign of depression because I know I normally am not that way in my balanced state so what you described in that what you just described a lot of people um the signs are very individually and specific but if you have your general pattern when you are in a good mood and you see you're actually going away from that you already maybe have an indication that something is up and sometimes yeah. it, doesn't, it doesn't have to be the heavy shit like feeling suicidal laying in bed no. all day stuff like that it's depression is a state of mind definitely it it, of course, it is a disorder, and I know it, but it's a diagnosis.
I need so much more, but it's a state of mind. And I think the moment you will, you're guessing, you're like in doubt and thinking like, is this depression or isn't it depression? You always should ask for help because yeah. it doesn't matter if it is it or if it's not, you think something is odd, just as you said. And I think that's the best moment to ask for help. Yeah, definitely. That's the thing. The funny thing is that, because um, I just referenced before we started out, uh, instead of, and this is a very, I think, a progress thing, because people know that I was very avoidant on getting any diagnosis. And I know a lot of people who are listening to this are still doing that because there are ladies above 40 that are listening to this and are struggling still with an eating disorder. Um, yeah. But um this year I talked with the Praktijk ondersteuner and it's like the supporter supporter of the GP. And that's something I would never do before, but I knew certain things weren't going well. So I thought, okay, I need to talk with that person to have somewhat of a buffer to yeah. you know to, to spar matches or somebody you can talk about with your thoughts. So for everybody who are listening to this, um I highly recommend it. Are, is it something you still do, Meryl, that you just go and still talk with a healthcare taker for stuff? Yeah. Well, I do still have therapy because I faced yeah, my autism diagnosis in January and then I got for the overstimulation. Mm -hmm. I follow therapy and I next week I'm starting with low self-esteem. It's a group for autistic people mm -hmm. because they uh, or people with autism of course now I'm using like the wrong not wrong, but the different version that I normally use. Mm -hmm. So that was what I meant. Like sometimes I use it like in and out and together and whatever. Mm -hmm. But um, I'm following then a group for um, people with autism and low self-esteem. And after that, I'm going to follow one more time or one last time EMDR. Mm -hmm. um, and I talked with a friend that I met in the clinic. Um, I talk with her every day, uh, every day of the week. We are like available to talk to each other. Nice. One, one day a week, we meet in real life and we have a tea or a walk or whatever. And we talk about our real problems, not about like how is the weather or which dress are you wearing tomorrow, mm -hmm. but like the real issues we're facing. That's yeah. a very beautiful thing. Yeah, I, I, really, yeah, I think that... Um... Uh, having superficial friends and having a deep friend. I have a very close near friend of mine that I got throughout my education. Having the opportunity to speak uh, about these topics with uh, people near to you that is not somebody that is getting paid, let's be honest, <laughs> is is one of, I think, the most best things you can have. And sometimes that is often the the real therapy and the extra you know how, how could i say it the, the right way that uh, that type of therapy with friends hits differently let me put it that way yes i agree before i was admitted to the clinic i was i don't want to like name her or describe how, how she's related to me but she's a really close friend right now and before i was admitted to the clinic we talked and we were like friends but after I went into recovery, I could talk, I knew that I could talk about everything with her. And after a month or two or three months, she was like becoming more open to me about her own issues. 
and now when we see each other we can talk about like all the fun things in life but we can also talk about all the worries we have and we realize that we're like actually quite similar that's a beautiful and, thing right because often yeah. you feel so alone with what you have and then you meet somebody and you're like oh fuck i'm not the only one yeah and actually i knew her already for seven years and wow. only i think the last year we grew so much to through each other mm -hmm. together as friends but also as like people who can talk to each other about the real issues and who understand each other because you can always talk to everyone but not everyone will understand you and yeah. I am super blessed with her that she is like my friend and that we're on the same level mentally and that she's always there for me to talk about the problem yeah definitely and i hope and everybody's listening to this not everybody's in that situation that you can have that person but the only way you're going to achieve that type of relationship yes. if you become vulnerable aka sneller kwetsbaar yes. because it's the only way you can make those deep connections yes and that was exactly what i want i was trying to say with it if i was never talking with her about my issues she would never be open about hers agree because we try to keep you know these podcast episodes in a certain yes. time frame um my last question to all the guests that come here is what is your take-home message for people that are listening well i always say you have to do it yourself but you don't have to do it by yourself and asking for help again is really scary and uh, talking from your emotions and sharing what you're actually thinking um, is really risky, but it's worth the risk. Risk, And as long as you cross that line, it makes your life so much easier because then you realize that you have to do it yourself, but you don't have to do it by yourself. Agree. 100% agree. I want to thank you so much for this episode. Uh, again, guys, if you want to, specifically Dutch group, if you want to follow Merel, mm -hmm. you can do it at @snellerkwetsbaar on Instagram. If you are listening to this as a person that wants her as a speaker, by all means, you hear how good she is in English. Maybe even in English, you know, Merel, go mm -hmm. have a guest speaking somewhere, maybe online or offline. Um, and again, I want to thank you so much. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. I would I definitely enjoyed it being like on your podcast. Um and I really appreciate for you asking me and I wish all the listeners the best and you of course as well. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the I'm Stuff podcast. If you would like to know more, you can go to imstuff.nl or to the Instagram imstuff underscore com and start working on your relationship with food today. <laughs>